It's great to see you this evening. It's been a fun uh, few months of studying the Bible together on Wednesday nights. We're actually going to take a little bit of a break the next um, couple of months. Um, one, I was planning on taking a little bit of a summer break anyway, because the summer is getting really uh, busy around here with some of the different things that are going on. And um, two, uh, next week I'm going to be uh, going to uh, South Africa to see my dad, because it seems like he might be on his way to heaven. It's hard to, hard to tell, but uh, it's definitely, um, definitely worth traveling to see him. Um, and then uh, that means I'll be gone, because it's such a long flight, I'll be gone two Wednesdays. So I'll be gone Wednesday to Wednesday, basically. So that means we'd miss the last two Wednesdays anyway, and then it's June. And so uh, we'll at least take June off. Maybe we'll uh, try to do a, uh, offer a Zoom Bible study or something like that um, in July or August. We'll see how the... We'll see how the um, summer goes. And then starting in September again, we'll get back to, uh, to CBI, which um, I'm excited because we have a long way to go. We're only in Genesis and barely in Genesis. Uh, but let's uh, open up with a word of prayer and ask that God would bless our time. We uh, need to know this book and not just as a matter of knowing more information, but because we uh, need God to speak to us. And uh, we're all uh, sinners, and we need uh, God to show us how great he is and how good the gospel is and um, help us to hate sin and to love Christ. And so this is not just, it's fun to study, but it's not just like studying something in school. Uh, we need to, uh, we, need, we need God, and we need to hear from him. But let's just ask that the Lord would bless, bless our time. Um, and I'll ask, uh, let's see, um, John Shigematsu, I know you're doing something with that paper over there, but would you mind uh, praying sure. for us? Thank you, sir. Amen. All right, well, we're looking at the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we've been looking at uh, Genesis for a while now, uh, but we began with just some basic facts, maybe you remember, about Genesis, and then we talked about some of the different themes in the book of Genesis, and the last couple weeks we've taken a minute to talk about uh, some important topics from Genesis, like, first of all, Genesis and marriage, and uh, then interpreting Genesis 1 through 3 was uh, last week. And so we spent some time in Genesis, but we're going to spend, uh, we're going to look at it again this evening, which in our modern age would seem crazy to a lot of people, honestly. I was reading somewhere uh, someone talking about Genesis who said, if you look at this book with uh, many unbelievers, they uh, will uh, just think it's a bunch of fairy tales and they're not going to have much respect for it. And the result is that sometimes if you look at it with believers, they uh, feel a little defensive and maybe even a little embarrassed by some of what is in Genesis. And uh, 
he says, both reactions are unjustified. And of course they are, because Genesis is a revolutionary book. In its time, it was revolutionary, and today it's revolutionary, and it's foundational. And benefiting from uh, Genesis begins with understanding what this book is about. In other words, what is the argument of Genesis? Because Genesis is making an argument. Uh, the person who wrote this book wanted to say something. He wasn't just telling the story. So we have to try to figure out what he was wanting to say. And one way to answer that question is just to look at the way it was put together. Uh, in other words, the structure of Genesis. And so kind of big picture, how did he go about saying what he wanted to say? And so we've, uh, as we've looked at Genesis, we've already talked a little bit about how Moses structured this book, actually. Maybe you remember that this is a book that has a very clear internal structure. So it was later on, probably in, um, in the ADs, and after, after the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ, that somebody put all the chapters and verses in our Bible. Um, but Moses had a way of structuring the book far before uh, the chapters. And uh, we talked about that, and we said he uses something that uh, is called toledots, the toledots. And that's a Hebrew uh, way of saying these are the generations of. And so there are basically 10 of these throughout Genesis. And they're used to introduce a new section of material. And basically what they do is they tie what was said before with, what was, with, with what's coming next. And sometimes they do that just by giving a genealogy. It will say something like, these are the generations of, and then uh, it gives a ge genealogy, which makes sense because the word toledot is talking about what came from something else. So this came from this, and it's descendants usually. That's how we think. And so it's not surprising that you would find a genealogy after the toledot, and you do five times. Five of the toledots in Genesis are just genealogies. The other five times, though, the toledot introduces a series of stories about a major character. So Adam, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph all get a toledot, or Jacob gets toledot. Almost like Moses is looking at what happened before and saying, this is the result. This is uh, the next step. So God created the heavens and the earth. And let me tell you about Adam. Uh, the world became really sinful. So let me tell you about Noah. And so as you read Genesis, the toledots are taking the story one step further, which makes clear we're going somewhere. This is not just Moses writing whatever comes to mind. He is leading us where? He starts with the heavens and the earth. He says in chapter two, verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So this is big. Imagine a movie with the, uh, like a satellite view of the earth. And then he goes to uh, Adam in Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And you read about death and judgment. And then Noah, Genesis 6. These are the sons of Noah. Uh, and you read about all these uh, divided nations. And then Shem. These are the generations of Shem. And then Terah. These are the generations of Terah. And Moses tells the story of Abraham from there, God calling Abraham and making promises to him, which we'll see are kind of the, an answer to Genesis 1 to 11, which is actually kind of key to understanding the argument of Genesis, making a connection between Abraham and the beginning of Genesis. 
because you uh, pick up Genesis and you read it all the way through, and you'll see that it has these two major sections, which we're used to because we've read Genesis before, but are kind of funny if you haven't read Genesis, because you've got like these two very clearly different parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which are epic, and they're really mostly about the beginning of the world, and they cover thousands and thousands and thousands of years. We don't even know how many thousands of years. And then chapters 12 through 50, which is mostly about the beginning of Israel and tells the story of just a few generations, just uh, hundreds of years, barely. And of course, if we look more closely, we can divide those sections more precisely. So chapters 1 through 11 begins with an introduction. Moses talks about the beginning of the world. And then in chapters 2 through 6, there's a fall, first of Adam and Eve, and then of Cain, and then of the world. And then in chapters 6 through 8, we see God beginning again with Noah. And then in chapters 9 through 11, there's another fall. This time, it's Noah and Ham and then the world. And so the point is, when you read Genesis 1 through 11, this is a, a pretty broad scope. You're looking at the whole world in the beginning of the book. And so, again, if you imagine this is, as a movie, this is a very wide angle. He's like looking at everybody. And then all of a sudden, you step into chapter 12, and we really zoom in. It's like we're coming from space, and we see a country, and then we see a state, and then we see a city, and then we see a community, and then we see a home, and then we see a man like mowing his lawn in the backyard. It really narrows down Genesis to just a few people. And there are these three main stories that make up the rest of the book. Chapters 12 through 25 are about Abraham and Isaac, mostly Abraham. 26 through 36 is about Jacob. And then 37 through 50 is all about Joseph. And so if we look at these two sections in Genesis, one is about the world, and one is about these three individuals. And they're not two separate books. That's kind of the point. They go together. And so they're part of an argument that Moses is making. And one of the first questions you want to ask is, how do they fit together? In other words, what do Abraham and his children have to do with the whole world? And of course, the way we start answering that is by looking at the introduction. So we go back to chapters 1 through 2, 3, which is the only section that doesn't begin with a toledot, which is why I say this is an introduction. Chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, it's like a prologue to Genesis. It's like the backstory. And we've talked about these chapters a lot, so I won't get into it too much more. But we've got the creation of the world, man, and Sabbath. And again, rather than look at that specifically, I just want to ask, what is the purpose of that? Why does Moses start that way? Because he could have started many different ways. And so why does he start with the creation of the world, especially given who the book was originally written to? Uh, because we said it was written to Israel by Moses in the wilderness. Either it was written uh, at Mount Sinai after they were meeting with God, there, or it was written after they sinned and were judged and before they entered the promised land. But either way, that's important because if Moses is trying to make an argument, he's trying to say something, he's first of all trying to say something to them, to those particular people. 
And so you have to put yourself in their shoes a little. When you uh, read the Old Testament, you have to feel the sand beneath your toes. You have to put yourself in their sandals if you're going to actually hear. Because first of all, Moses is talking to a particular group of people. And so you have to ask, why did he write this to them? How does this answer the questions they might have been asking? Because what kinds of things would they have been asking about as they're sitting there? They're probably not wondering so much honestly about philosophical questions. Uh, there's a lot of philosophy you can get from the Bible, but it's important to understand that like, a lot of the Bible wasn't written just as philosophy. These people certainly weren't sitting there in the wilderness thinking about philosophical questions at that point, or even so much wondering about the origin of the world and the technicalities and like the science of how did God create everything. But probably more, they were wondering, what are we doing here? Like, why are, why are we doing this? We're homeless in the desert. Uh, we, why are we here? And, uh, you know, Moses keeps saying God wants us to go into this land and defeat these people. And who are we to do that? We're literally just a bunch of former slaves. I, you did, I didn't see any of you as like Navy SEALs. They're looking at each other. You're, you, you just were a bricklayer. And we're not even really a nation. Like we are a people, but we don't have like a land ourselves. Can we do this? How, how, do, we, how, do, we, how do we get, how did we get here? And what do we do now that we're here? And Moses' answer, is okay, okay, okay. Let's go back to creation. <laughs> let's go back to the beginning. And let's look at the big picture and God's plan. You are the descendants of Abraham. And to understand why you exist and why we are here in this moment, you have to understand God's goal for the universe. And what Moses says about creation in chapter one would have really resonated to them. Uh, First of all, because of the contrast with the other creation stories they might have been familiar with. So obviously, there, it wasn't like people in the ancient world never thought about the beginning of the world. There's all kinds of stories about how the world began. And Moses tells a story here that has some similarity to some of the stories they might have heard before. Um, but if they looked closely, they would have seen that it was really standing in opposition to many of those stories. First of all, because there's only one God in Genesis 1. Um, one author explains, first, in regard to the very nature of the creator, all societies of the ancient Near East, except for the Hebrews, were polytheists. That means they believed in many gods. The gods themselves were imminent, that is, personified in various powers and elements of the universe. So they thought of the sun as a god, for example. These gods were not omnipotent, but were restricted in power to the capacity of the natural elements they personified. In addition, the temperament of the gods often reflected human nature so that they frequently acted in a depraved, perverted manner, which actually, if you look at most creation stories, is how uh, they thought the world got started, some perverted act of a couple of gods. But in uh, Genesis, it's one God, and he's not part of the creation. He's sovereign over it. He's not asking for help from anyone. <laughs> and he creates, and it's not a struggle between uh, him and another God. It's just God speaking. 
and the world happening, the world being created. And we see in Genesis not only the sovereignty of God, Genesis 1, but the goodness of God on display. God's the subject of every verb in chapter 1, and he takes what is formless, and he gives it form, and he takes what's empty, and he fills it for our good. He's like an artist in this chapter making this beautiful world, and it's easy for him. And you're wondering, what is he making this for? And the climax of the chapter, we've said, comes at the creation of man. And we're like, oh, wow. And we see God blessing man. Most other creation stories, or at least the ones that were um, close to where the Hebrews lived, were about God's making humans um, to do work that they didn't want to do. And yet the Genesis story is almost like the mirror reverse of that because we see God making this world to be a beautiful place for humans and then blessing them, which shows us God's good intentions for humans. He doesn't need us, but he made man and he blesses man. And then Moses gives us a glimpse into the plan. We've said, he, what did he make man for? And this is important because one of the ways the Bible works is you look to the past to understand the future. So if you're going to ask somebody in the Bible what's going to happen in the future, a lot of the prophets would say, okay, let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. Uh, Let me talk about the past. And as they talk about the past, they're actually telling you what's going to happen in in the future. And if you keep that principle in mind, Genesis is going to pop for you for sure. But that's part of what's happening in uh, the creation story. The creation story, all eschatology, that's the study of and things begins with protology, the study of first things. And this chapter is helping Israel, first of all, understand why they exist. You're supposed to look to the creation of man to understand the future of Israel. And what do you see? You see man being made in God's image, and we talked about this, but it means man acting as God's representative, bringing the world into submission, and enjoying fellowship with God. So this is God's intention, blessing, And that's man's purpose, representing God by bringing the world into order and filling it with other little images of him. And that's great, but obviously that's not the way the world was at that point. And Israel knew it because they just came out of being enslaved in Egypt. And so they weren't exercising dominion. Somebody was exercising dominion over them. And it was awful as the king was trying to kill their children and keep them from worshiping God. And so Moses is taking them back to the beginning of the world and looking at how it's supposed to be. And one thing he's explaining is why it's not like that anymore. And in chapters 2, verse 4 through chapter 11, we find two major cycles of failures. And so in my mind, Genesis 2 through 11 is really the Romans 1 to 3 of the Old Testament. Because you know Romans 1 to 3. In Romans 1, Paul's like, let me, the gospel's amazing. I, I, I love the gospel. It's the power of God. But first, before I talk to you about the good news, let me tell you uh, three chapters about how sinful people are and how we can't save ourselves. And in Genesis 1 to 11, Moses begins, he's like, God is good, and creation is amazing, and God has this unstoppable intention to bless humans, but man is super messed up, and let me show you how messed up, starting in chapter 2, with this first cycle of failure. And we're not going to look at this very carefully, but in chapters 2 and 3, after describing uh, the beginning of the world in these grand terms, Moses comes back and he begins with a more specific description of the creation of man. 
And it's like an exposition of what he said in chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. And probably the big thing I want to show you as we looked at the, this the past couple of weeks, I wanted to show you as we looked at this the past couple of weeks, is that the picture of the Garden of Eden to an Israelite person hearing it for the first time would have sounded a lot like the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. So you can make an argument that the first chapter would have sounded like God designing himself a temple. But this chapter, chapter two, there's no question. It's almost like we're looking at the tabernacle before it ever came into the world in chapter two. Either the tabernacle was modeled after this or this is the first tabernacle. But there are all these connections and I, I think I showed you some of them, but you've got Genesis 3.8 and God's walking in the garden and Leviticus 26, which says, I will make my tabernacle among you and I will walk among you, same language. Genesis 3, you have the cherubim placed at the edge of the garden. Exodus 25, God has Moses make cherubim for the holy of the holies. Genesis 2.9, you have the tree of life. In Exodus 25, you have this lampstand that looks like a tree that's to be put in the tabernacle. Genesis 2.15, you have God putting man in the garden to work it and keep it. Those same words are only used in numbers to describe the priest's role and task and other similarities. And so in Genesis 1, we've got this big picture of man being made in the image of God. And it's like Moses is saying, we are kingly, we are queenly. And then in chapter 2, we have man being called to serve as a priest. I read an article recently that was in the beginning, God created a priest with only one rule. Priests in Moses' day obviously had all kinds of rules, but in the beginning, just one law of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, which is deep for us, and we're always like, what does that mean? And that's a good question, but clearly one thing it means is God wants to know, will man trust God's counsel that God knows best? So we are people, no matter how much we fight against it, who are designed before the fall to be dependent on outside counsel. You, if you can say, I just do my own thing, liar. You, that's, that's called not being human. You are dependent to live on outside counsel. You cannot live life as a human being apart from outside counsel. And God wants us to live dependent on his counsel. And the question at the beginning is will man trust God's counsel that God knows best? Which, of course, in chapter 3, we see Satan attacks, and he offers another interpretation, which has always been the problem, this other counsel that comes into the world, saying, basically, God doesn't want your good. You can't trust God's word. And man trusts Satan and, and, and falls. And the picture, as we read the story, is not actually, you know, of Satan coming and tempting. We learn that later in the Bible, but if we're just reading Genesis Three, it's of an animal, a serpent coming. And so if we just read this, we get a picture of an animal overcoming man and exercising authority over man, which of course was the opposite of God's design. And that's exactly what Satan loves to do, right? He's always attacking God's design by saying, I've got a better plan, which in the end results not in magnifying us as humans, but demeaning us. And so that's exactly what, what happens. Man becomes less manly and less glorious by, instead of ruling over the animal, being ruled over by the animal. 
And you can read about that in Genesis 3. But the result is judgment. And we see that God says now there are going to be problems in childbearing. Now there's going to be problems in the land. And now there's going to be problems in your relationship between one another. There's going to be this hostility between the godly and the ungodly. And there's going to be problems in your relationship with me because God sends man into exile. And Genesis uh, 3.24 is a really sad verse where it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we can't get eternal life without somebody dying. There's a, there's a cherubim there who's, who's going to kill anyone who tries to enter, which is um, part of God's kindness, obviously, because we don't want to eternally live in this sinful world the way it is. But it's also sad and it's judgment and it only gets worse as we go to Genesis 4 because if we look at Genesis chapter 4, the first thing that happens after man is driven from the garden seems kind of good. Genesis 4 verse 1 says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And you remember the command to bear fruit and multiply. So that's happening. And there's uh, the promise God made about the seed. And this is Eve's first seed, you could say. They have a son named Cain. And then she had another, verse 2, Abel. And verse 3, fast forwards, and we see they both bring an offering, and God favors the offering of Cain. Though he doesn't tell us why, we could guess, but he doesn't tell us. It just says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the, of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, we had no regard, or he had no regard. And then it tells us Cain's response. He gets angry and his face falls. So uh, internally and externally, he is upset. And it tells us what God says in response, because God is kind and God comes to Cain and he asks him, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? And then he gives them the possibility of being blessed. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And also a warning, he says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And the picture is of sin being like an animal, stalking him and wanting to destroy him by making him act like an animal. And he does. He doesn't listen to God. He doesn't trust God's kindness. And he kills his brother. And yet again, God shows mercy and comes to Cain, just like he did to Adam and Eve. And he says, where is Abel, your brother? And this is so often God's way, giving people opportunities to repent, which Cain does not take. He lies, and we see man's response. When God comes in mercy, first in the garden, he blame shifts, and uh, now he lies. And I often think about my response to, uh, to rebuke and recognize that, wow, you know, the temptation to blame shift is so strong, and no wonder it's so strong, because we've been like literally doing this for thousands of years, like ever since the beginning. This is how humans respond, by pointing to someone else or by lying. But neither work. There's, uh, there's only one way for sin to be dealt with, and that's God dealing with it. Our methods definitely don't work. And Cain's lie gets him nowhere, because God says, verse 10, Genesis 4.10, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And what's the picture there? You've got blood crying out from the ground. And the result is that he's cursed from the ground. 
There are going to be more problems in the land. And it's interesting. It's like the land is against Cain. He says, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. And so he's picturing the ground, the earth, almost as like a person opening its mouth for Cain's, uh, for Abel's blood and getting almost angry in a sense at Cain and making it more difficult for Cain to do his work. And yet, in spite of that, there's still no repentance. And he blames God and he says God is too hard and he's sent into further exile where he has children. Uh, first, Enoch. And then chapter 4 tells the story of the rest of his descendants, which is not all bad. They make culture. They make flutes and things like that, instruments. But they are violent. If you look at the end of the chapter, you meet someone named Lamech. And he's like, I'm worse than Cain. I'm tougher than Cain. And I can take care of myself better than God. So this is pretty scary and sad, but not hopeless because verse 25, it says, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. And so the emphasis is on God appointed an offspring or seed. And so this is like an answer to prayer and gives hope that the promise God made in Genesis 3.15 is still on. God, you said a seed would come for me who would defeat the serpent. Cain killed Abel. What's going to happen? You've given me another son. And that's confirmed. As Seth has sons, and at the end of verse 26, Moses says, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So that's the first mention, really, of praying in the Bible. And there are some things that are confusing as you read Genesis 3 and 4, and uh, we might wish God had told us more, like, where did Cain get his wife and all of those things? But the picture that God wants us to see is clear enough, and that is that man sins, the world gets violent, and Satan continues his attack on the righteous. And it looks like there's no hope, but then God steps in, and Eve has another child, and we start reading about this righteous line, and Moses tells us about them in chapter 5. So he traces like the seed of the serpent from Cain, and then he starts tracing the seed of the woman in chapter 5 through the line of Seth. And we see they experience the curse, but there's also hope because we read this chapter, chapter 5, and it's like death, 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 but someone survives. Who survives? Who gets out alive? Seth has a descendant named Enoch. So like Cain had a descendant named Enoch. Now we look at the godly line. Seth also had a descendant named Enoch. And he doesn't die. And then Seth also has a descendant named Lamech. So Cain had a descendant named Lamech who was really terrifying. He's like, I kill everybody I see kind of guy. And then Seth has a son, a descendant named Lamech, and he seems to be hoping in God to keep his promise to Eve. And we see that because he has a son named Noah, which sounds like rest, and that's what the name Noah sounds like, and says he is hoping that he will be the one to reverse the curse. And we know, of course, what happened. But if we were there in that moment, that would be exciting. Here's maybe someone who's going to reverse the curse and bring us the promised rest. And that's the context for chapter 6. And Satan hates God's promised plan, of course. And in the opening verses of chapter 6, we see Satan attacking God's plan. In verses 1 and 2, where Moses writes, When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And Dave Beakley at the retreat explained that. 
But God puts a time limit on man's lifespan. Um, and we see that man's heart is wicked and God decides to blot out man. But there's hope in verse 7 because Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so what God decides to do is basically reverse creation and start over again. So what happens is it's like God, de- he created the world. It gets so wicked that he decreates the world. And then he recreates the world. So I, I didn't really understand this as clearly, but if you think of the way the biblical authors think about history, it's like there are two major eras in history. There's before the flood, and then there's after the flood. And before the flood was very different. That's when Enoch walked with God. And that is probably not metaphorical. That's like something big going on because of that particular language in the Pentateuch. So before the flood is definitely different. And then after the floods, God creates the world and he destroys it. And if you read this story of the flood carefully, you see that the destruction, the way it's described, takes place in the same order as creation. It goes earth, mountains, birds, cattle. It's almost like the punishment fits the crime. And so as man removes all limits in an attempt to achieve autonomous existence, kind of like we will not submit to God, God removes the limits he placed at the beginning for man's safety. And the world is thrown into chaos. But as he does that, he also shows mercy. And he starts again with Noah. And he tells him about this judgment and a means of salvation. And he has him build an ark, which would have taken faith. And that's kind of the point. As you read the story, it talks all about the way Noah built the ark, not so that we can build our own arks, but because Moses is like, this is the way. Faith in God's promise. This is how we can be saved. And the result is that it's like God begins again with Noah. And it's really like he begins again. If you turn to chapter 8, you see that there are all kinds of parallels with the first creation. So I was reading someone recently who noted some of the similarities. So Genesis 1 and creation, you've got things like Genesis 1-2, it talks about the waters covering the earth. And it talks about the spirit hovering over the water. And then it talks about dry land emerging. And there's this verse about, you remember the expanse separating waters above from the waters below. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 and 24, you've got swarming and creeping animals who are supposed to bear fruit and multiply. And then you've got God resting. And then you turn to Genesis 8, and you know what you've got? You've got waters covering the earth. You've got the same word for spirit, the same Hebrew word for spirit over the waters. You've got Genesis 8.1, and, and God made a wind, which is the same word as spirit, blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. And then there's God separating the waters of the heaven from the waters of the earth in Genesis 8.3. He talks about the fountains of the deep, the waters from under the expanse, and the windows from heaven, the waters from above the expanse. They're closed. And in, chapters eight, in chapter 8, verses 17 through 19, he talks about swarming and creeping animals. And he talks about being fruitful and multiplying. And then it talks about God being soothed, or you could say God resting or being satisfied at least by Noah's offering. So you have creation and recreation. And uh, then Adam and Noah have a lot of parallels as well. So Adam was commissioned in God's image. Adam was commanded to fill the earth. God brings animals to Adam for naming. 
And Noah, God's taken all the wicked out of the world. He begins again with Noah. He makes a promise, and he issues a similar command, bear fruit and multiply. And then he talks about Noah being made in God's image. And God had already brought the animals to Noah to deliver and also protects him from the animals after they leave the ark. And so this is like the beginning of the second age. And the question we're asking is, how's it going to go? And the first thing Noah does is sacrifice. And it says this was a soothing aroma to God. And God makes a promise that he won't curse the ground again because of man. So that's good. God is, God is going to, he's going to provide salvation. But what's bad is that man hasn't really changed. So if you have Genesis 6, 5, in Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then if you look at Genesis 8, 21, which is after the flood, it says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so it's like man hasn't really changed. And we see that because like Adam, Noah falls. And Genesis 9 through 11 is a second cycle of failure, beginning with Noah, who falls in a very similar way to Adam. So Adam sins in the garden. Adam partakes of the fruit of knowledge. Adam becomes naked and ashamed. Adam's nakedness is covered by God. God says that Adam's descendants will experience the curse, or we see that they experience the curse. And Noah plants a vineyard, which is garden-esque. He partakes of the fruit of the vine. His mind changes in some way as he gets drunk. He becomes naked. He's shamed by one of his sons. He's then covered, and Ham experiences a curse as a result. And so it's like God gave the world a bath. He cleansed it. It's, it's almost like what would happen if you took the most righteous man in the whole world and started again? The same thing that happened with <laughs> Adam. Um, and what happens after Adam and Eve sin? You've got violence. After Ham's sin, you've got the division of the whole world and all this conflict between peoples, which is Genesis 10. So Genesis 10 and 11 have this weird relationship because... In our Bibles, obviously, Genesis 10 comes before Genesis 11. You find out about all these nations in Genesis 10, and it talks about the land being divided. How did this happen, though? That's Genesis 11. So Genesis 11 in time happens before Genesis 10. So Genesis 10 is like a setup. This is the way the world is. Genesis 11, this is why. Because some of Noah's descendants build a city, and they, the reason they say they want to build that city is because they want to make a name for themselves. Genesis 11:4. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And that tower, they call it a ziggurat. And basically, you know how the Garden of Eden was like a mountain, and at the top of that mountain was the place you meet with God? A ziggurat was like a human way of recreating that same experience with we're going to build a, a mountain where at the top we can experience God. And so in a sense, that's what they're trying to do. It's a, a self-salvation. Self and God, we're going to have a kingdom just without submitting to God. And God comes down and he, he confuses their language. We know this story, which is this huge judgment. 
And um, I think we've said it before, but if you compare the flood to the Tower of Babel, it's like which judgment was actually worse? And I think you could say maybe by now that the Tower of Babel was a, a worse, at least equally bad judgment because of all the problems that have happened in history as a result of just something as simple as different languages and different, different cultures. And you see the futility as well of man's rebellion because the result is the exact opposite of what they were wanting. They're dispersed, they have no names except their city is named Confusion, and they're sent into exile like Adam. And so that's Genesis 1 to 11, the first part of Genesis. And what's the theme? It's basically about the exile of the nations. How did the world get to be in the mess that it is with everybody hating each other and hurting each other and doing all these terrible things to one another? Which, like I said, is the setup for the second part of Genesis. Israel is sitting there listening to Moses tell this story about all these people they didn't know who came thousands and thousands of years before them, and they're supposed to learn something about why they exist. And so it's, it's good to think a little bit about what they could learn about God, their world, and the problems in the world if you step back and think it, about it like you were Israel. What would you learn about failure from Moses? Where problems come from? You would think about the Garden of Eden and you would think about rejecting God's counsel, not listening to God's warnings, and rebelling against God's authority, wanting to, defile, uh, wanting to define good and evil for yourself. And so Moses has already told Israel, you're going into the land, and he's de described the land in very similar ways to the Garden of Eden. And so what do you think he's telling them? He's telling them, our hope as we enter this land is to not define good and evil for ourselves, but to trust God's counsel. And you can maybe think of ways this same thing gets played out in the rest of the Old Testament. And also you see all this violence. You find brothers murdering brothers out of jealousy and self-advancement. And then what's happening at the time of the flood is more violence, which I think is a major theme, more of a theme than I realized. All this conflict between people. And actually when we get to the Joseph story, part of the glory of the Joseph story is that Joseph blesses the whole world and brings feuding brothers, Cain and Abel. He, he solves the Cain and Abel problem, basically. God solves the Cain and Abel problem through Joseph. But then you have the Tower of Babel where we see man's pride and wanting to get back into the Garden of Eden without relying on God. And so self-salvation, really, and we see what results from that. The exile. You see the exile of the world. People getting further and further away from God and from a relationship with him. So this is pretty serious. But are there any hints of hope so far? in Genesis 1 to 11. Yes, where's the hope? In God being good and having this sort of unshakable, unstoppable intention to bless man. And in a promised seed. Anything else? Any other places we might find hope in Genesis 1 to 11? Noah and sacrifice. So we see that after Noah offers this sacrifice, God is soothed and he makes a, a promise not to uh, curse the world in spite of man's sin. Then also you find hope in walking with God. Because in this story about all these people dying, 
you have Enoch who walked with God and Noah who walked with God. And uh, Enoch escapes death and Noah escapes judgment. And then you have uh, God's faithfulness to his promise. How did Noah get out of the ark? Genesis 8.1. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now, what does that sound like? God remembered Noah. What would that have sounded like maybe to somebody who had read Exodus? It sounded like exactly how Israel got out of Egypt. God remembered God remembered the covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so the, the hope is in God's faithfulness to his promise. We serve a God who makes promises and he remembers them. And then the hope in Genesis 1 through 11 is in this thing called a covenant. As we look at man's wickedness, the world not changing, where's the hope? It's the hope, in the, the hope is in the fact that God out of his sheer mercy, enters into something called a covenant, a kind of relationship with human beings and the world. Um, and um, I think, actually, the way Moses tells this story would have made a connection in uh, Israel's minds because the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark is the same thing that Moses did after he came down after meeting with God on the mountain. The first thing they both did was build an altar. And so I think if you were there, you hear about Noah and you see Moses and what he did after meeting with God and there would be a connection in your mind. Okay, God made this covenant with Noah. Now here we've got Moses and God's, it, Moses is telling us that God's making a covenant with us. And so it's like a hint. Oh, what's happening with us is connected to what happened back then. But those are just hints in the first 11 chapters. And so by chapter 12, you're like, how is this going to happen exactly? I know it's supposed to be this seed, but where is the seed going to come from? And now we almost are at chapter 12, the second part of the book, and it's a lot longer. We've gone from all these thousands and thousands of years looking at the world in, in just 11 chapters, and it ends with a people who want to make a name for themselves. But now... We're going to zone in on a descendant of, of, of someone named Shem. And Shem, you know what his name means? Is name. So Shem's name is name. So if you go back for a minute, we can get more specific. Because in um, chapter 10, what Moses does is he begins to give this genealogy of Shem. And then he pauses and he tells us a story about one line of Shem's descendants who wanted to make a name for themselves. So one line of Name's descendants who wanted to make a name for themselves. And he tells you what happened to them. This is the line of Shem, Shem, Eber, Peleg, and Joktan. And then he focuses on Joktan's descendants who want to make this name for themselves and what happens to them. But then, after he tells that story, he's like, let me go back to Shem. And, and tell you about another line of his descendants. And he starts to talk about Shen, Eber, and Peleg. And he focuses on Peleg. And so the first family led to division. Now let me tell you about another family and what happens to them. And he talks primarily about one descendant of Shem named Abraham. And why? If you look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, uh, what does he say? Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, 
and I will make you a, of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God's like, I am going to do this. This is where salvation comes from. You've got one line of human beings who are connected to the serpent, and their whole goal is to ignore me and make a name for themselves and achieve salvation by their own efforts, and this is what's going to happen. Judgment, futility, chaos. But there's hope because I'm going to step in and keep the promise I made to Eve, and I'm going to do for man what man cannot do for himself. And Abram, I am going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And the big word in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is blessing. And in that little section of verses, just a few verses, the word blessing is found five times. And that reverses the five times curse is found after Adam's sin in Genesis 1 to 11. And so you could say, for God so loved the world, he chose Abram. That's really Genesis 12. And uh, one last time so that you can see how this works, and this is in your notes, but you have creation, Genesis 1, 1 through 6, 8. You have creation out of chaotic water with divine blessing in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. Then you have a sin involving, involving nakedness. You have seen and covering the nakedness. You have a curse in chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 3, verse 24. Then you have the division of humanity into the people of God and the enemies of God in chapter 3, verse 15 through chapter 4, verse 16. Then you have no descendants of, of the sinful um, or murdered younger, uh, you have no descendants of the murdered younger righteous brother, um, Abel. And then you do have the descendants, I think there must be a word that's in there, that's not, shouldn't be. Then you have the descendants of sinful Cain, who builds a city in chapter 4, verse 17 through 24. Then you have the descendants of chosen Seth, 10 generations to Noah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 32. And then you have their downfall, unlawful unions, men and women, marriage, chapter 6, 1 through 4, or angels and women. And then you have a brief introduction to a faithful savior, Noah, in chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. Then you have recreation, Genesis 6, 9 through eleven thirty two, And look at it. It's just the same story again. Creation out of chaotic water with divine blessing, chapter 6, verse 9 through 9, 19. Sin involving nakedness, seeing and covering the nakedness and the curse, chapter 9, verses 20 through 23. Division of humanity into the people of God and the enemies of God, chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Descendants of the younger righteous Japheth, chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Descendants of the sinful son Ham builds multiple cities, chapter 10, verses 6 through 20. Descendants of the chosen Shem, 10 generations to Terah, chapter 10, verses 21 through 32. Their, da their downfall, which is this unlawful union between men, actually, and uh, desiring to disobey God. And then you have a brief introduction to a faithful savior, Abram, in chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. And so now we would need to look at these chapters and see what we can learn about God's solution to the problems that we see in this world, starting with Abraham. And the solution, we're not going to get much of a chance to look at it at all, but the solution begins with a promise. 
And the whole Abraham story is really about this promise that's laid out in Genesis chapter 12, but explained and expounded on in Genesis 12 through 25. And he takes time on it because this promise, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, sets the whole agenda for the rest of the Pentateuch. The rest of the Pentateuch is basically the partial fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. The Pentateuch ends with this promise being only partially fulfilled. And so we're asking, when is it going to be fully fulfilled? But God makes a promise about a place. Basically, what happens is God looks at all these problems that resulted because of man's sin, and God's like, I'm going to fix them one by one. So God makes a promise about a land. Go to the land that I will show you, which becomes a big theme. Then he makes a promise about a people. And he says, I will make of you of a great nation. And this becomes a major theme. And as we read the Abraham story, we see this seed is going to be as countless as the stars. There's going to be more than one nation. There's actually going to be nations. And there are going to be kings. And then God makes a promise about blessing. He says, I'll bless you so that you'll be a blessing. And he says that hope for others is going to be found in Abram. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. So like God's looking at the whole world. And he's identifying the hero is going to come from this man. <laughs> Hope for the world is coming from Abram. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's the emphasis. All mankind shall be blessed in Abraham and his seed. And that's repeated five times in Genesis. And so looking at Genesis 1 through 11, we see God's got this unstoppable intention to bless and here we're beginning to get an idea how, how he's going to fix the curse man's sin has brought into the world and how he's going to fix the curse man's sin brought upon his relationship with God and how he's going to fix the problems man's sin brought into our relationship with one another and how he's going to do all this fixing and all this blessing through a descendant of Abraham. He's going to win. But it begins with God making a promise and Abraham responding how? Like Noah in faith, right? He's sort of the anti-Adam. Genesis 12, 4, God says, go. The text says, Abram went. And that took a lot of faith because he was leaving the center of civilization. So this was like leaving the uh, greatest nation on earth at that time. And in, those, in life in those days, you know, you didn't just leave your family and where you were from for some other place because it was a dangerous world, but he did. And verse 8 tells us that it tells us actually a certain direction that he went. It tells us certain cities that he went, which is kind of ironic because Jacob is going to go that same direction. And then later, Joshua, when he enters the land, is going to go the same direction as Abram. He's going to identify the same cities in terms of the conquest. And so it's like, again, you want to understand the future, look to the past. After God made the promise, Abram went. This is the direction that he went. And this is what happened at the end in uh, verse, um, uh, where, where does it say it? Verse, uh, my eyes are actually getting, I'm, I'm almost at the point where I need glasses um, um, for reading. But it talks about Abram building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord. I guess it's verse, end of verse 8. There he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. And so building an altar connects him to who? Noah. And calling upon the name of, and Moses actually, and calling upon the name of the Lord connects him with who? 
Seth. So it's like this really is where the hope is going to be found. And then what happens? He fails, right? A couple of failures. Um, the first failure has to do with the promise of seed. Genesis 12, 10 through 20. There's a famine in the land, which sounds like what? There's a famine in the land. It sounds like what happens later with Joseph. And he goes down to Egypt, which would be significant for the people who are reading why. Because they just came from Egypt, right? And so Abraham's concern is what? My wife is beautiful, and uh, I don't want to die. And uh, we read that, and we think that's, that's uh, what's he thinking. But again, that shows how dangerous the world was back then. So it's, this is a little bit like back in the days when they had slaves and they had to worry about their masters because they were such bad guys. Um, that's the kind of world that Abraham was living in and he had, Abram was living in and he was trying to make a plan to uh, survive. Um, and at first it seems like his plan works, verses 14 through 16. It's basically, they did see that she was beautiful. <laughs> they... Uh, take her, and they deal well with Abram because of her. Um, but what is this? If, Ab if Moses has told Abram, us Abram is the seed, and now he lets the seed get married to someone else, how's that a problem? Because the seed is supposed to come from Abram. <laughs> and that's the hope for the whole world, being saved. And now she's married to someone else. But what does verse 17 tell us? But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so how's that a preview of what we're going to read in Exodus? There's an attack on the seed by a pharaoh, and you've got God's protection through plagues. And what happens to Abram? Uh, he escapes. Um, pharaoh says, get out of here. And chapter 13, verse 2, he ends up, being really rich as a result of his time in Egypt, which sounds like who? It sounds like pretty much what happened to Israel, right? Pharaoh, Egypt gave them all that stuff, and they left with enough to build the tabernacle and, and do all kinds of things. But Abram also ends up suffering a little because this is where he picks up a lady named Hagar, and we'll read about her later. But what are the people reading this learning about salvation? They're learning like, we need to keep trusting God and that God is absolutely committed to this plan and able to take care of us. Um, but Abram believes and then struggles and yet God protects. And then you find a second failure in chapter 13 where he's promised the land, but he basically offers it up to Lot and yet Lot doesn't accept. But so much of Abraham's story is about will he trust God's promise and can God actually do what's impossible. And that's where salvation comes from for him and for the people around him and ultimately, of course, for us. And we know Abraham does believe in the end and that's what's counted to him as righteousness. And then we get the story of Jacob who's always trying to take things into his own hands and we see that God is the one who has to save. Jacob's story, Abraham's story is kind of like, can God reverse the curse when it's physically impossible? And... Um, there's even like a kind of resurrection, basically, in, you know, can he resurrect the seed? And then, um, because Abraham's seed was dead, 
and so was Sarah's. And then uh, with Jacob, it's like, can God achieve his, his, his plan using a, someone who doesn't trust him and always keeps trying to take things into his own hands? And no matter how badly Jacob tries to mess it up and what a knucklehead he is, God just keeps getting done what he wants to get done. And then we get the story of Joseph, which is really a different story in that it's almost like we're back to the big picture, and this story gives us a glimpse of the whole rest of the Bible and how God's saving and how we need to respond. But we'll have to look at the way Genesis ends next time. It's a great, great book for sure. It's amazing. It takes us back to the beginning to show us the future, not just for Israel, but for us. God's got a big plan to reverse the curse through the descendant of Abram, who's going to sacrifice himself as a substitute in our place, look like he's been forgotten, but then be resurrected and ascend to the throne from which he's going to bring blessing to the nations and reconciliation between all God's people. And uh, so we go to the book of Genesis, not just to, you know, read old stories or, you know, be fascinated by these parallels, but to find hope, to find hope. What do you need to know in this world? You need to know that God has a plan, that God has a plan. And he, his, his plan is absolutely unstoppable. You need to know who God is, that he's a God who's sovereign, that he's a God who's good, that he's a God who's wise, and that he's a God who's able to take all of man's evil and use it to accomplish, accomplish good. He's done it. You look, if you want to know the future, you look to the past. You look to the past. And if you look to Genesis, you can see what's coming. You can see what's coming. There's a day coming when we'll be like Joseph. <laughs> we'll be looking at back at this world and, and be rejoicing with Jesus and say, man, what a God, what a God. You meant it for evil, but he used it for good. Uh, in the meantime, like Joseph, we have to hope in that promise while we're still in Egypt, you know, because <laughs> um, the book of Genesis actually ends, uh, it ends with um, Israel not in the land. They're actually where they shouldn't be. They, they're, they're in Egypt. And Joseph, you know, one of the last things Joseph says is, you've got to promise me to hold on to my bones after I die because I know God's faithful and uh, I know God promised us that land. And that's where, that's where I want my bones to be. Why? I think because Joseph probably knew he was going to be resur resurrected. But all right, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And we're just like little children reading this book. Uh, but we thank you that we have the spirit of God. And we just ask that you would help us, God, to, to, to read it humbly and to read it to be transformed and to remember and to be warned and to think biblically. We've got so much pressure to think just like the world around us, but we want to be people with transformed minds. And so we know if that's going to happen, our, our minds have to marinate in your word. We want to be dependent on your counsel, not like Adam, who listened to outside counsel that came from Satan, and we see what happened. We want to be uh, like Noah, who trusted you and obeyed, and like Abram, really, who trusted you and obeyed. But please help us, Lord. Thank you for this time we've had the past couple months, and uh, Lord, we look forward to next year as we keep uh, studying this great word, and we pray this in your name.
Amen.